The sermon text for today is Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1522. Listen as I read God's word. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, beginning, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here together with you today. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and we are in a series right now uh, titled Mark, Following the Authoritative Son of God. As Chris mentioned earlier, uh, we want to, as as we've been trying to, as a church family, spend time in the book of Mark over uh, the course of this series, we want to allow space for you to share what you're learning and what God is doing in your life. Uh, We do believe that as we read scripture as we spend time in the Bible and as we sort of sit at the feet of Jesus in the book of Mark, that we will encounter and be changed by Jesus. And we want to uh, have the, the, the mutual benefit of hearing ways that God is at work in your life and the ways that God is changing you. Uh, so we have a couple of questions that are up here just to help guide your thinking. Uh, so this isn't just kind of um, open sharing time about whatever you want to share about. We really want this to be uh, how is God using Mark in your life? How, what are you seeing that you haven't seen before? What, uh, what are you maybe seeing in fresh ways? What are you reading that is leading you to delight in who God is? Uh, or as, as a result of what you're reading, is there a, a word of encouragement that you'd have for our church family? So what we're going to do is take the next just about five minutes, and I just want to sort of leave space for anyone who would like to share 
um, what you've been learning. And so um, I will hold the mic for you, as is our custom. I will not hand the mic to you. If you've been around Elmwood, you know this. We don't hand the mic to anyone. Um, unfortunately, they hand me a mic, but that's, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, so we just encourage you to keep it to two minutes or less. And then if we have a couple people that want to share, uh, we'll do that. And then we will get into uh, the message for this morning. So is there anyone who would like to share? Benjamin. Um, in, in Mark 2, what, what struck me afresh, was seen kind of for the first time in fresh ways, um, there's this small passage about these men bringing their friend to Jesus. And it says they dig through the person's roof. And um, if you're a homeowner or have, any, have ever done any roof things, like that's a big, big deal to <laughs> go. I, I wouldn't saw through your roof unless I really, really felt like it was Thanks. Like, yeah, <laughs> necessary. Um, but what struck me, I just kept reading it over and over again, was number one, their faith that Jesus could do something. Like that's, that's, that's big faith for them, for this new guy on the scene. And two, their faithfulness to their own friend, like that kind of deep friendship and community. They said, we're going to hoist a man up onto the roof and dig through a roof to drop him in front of this new rabbi. So I just think it's a beautiful picture of, of friendship and community and faith. It's helpful to me. Christine? Well, I, I, you know, when uh, they're talking about when he called Levi, and um, while, Jesus, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. There were many. It's not just that they were at Simon's house because he was a tax collector. These tax collectors and sinners were attracted to Jesus and followed him and and makes you think, okay, what is it that caused him to be attracted? Certainly the Pharisees weren't attracting them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, he says that when, they criti- when the Pharisees criticized him, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Then Jesus said, it's not the health you and the doctor, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Anyway, he must have been a cool guy. It's yeah. <laughs> a great way of putting it. it. Sort of makes you wonder, are we as followers of Jesus, are we enjoyable to be around? Are we the kind of people that those who are far from God want to be around or is the way we are as followers of Jesus repulsive to people? Because Jesus himself wasn't repulsive. Anyone else? Maybe one more. Oh, Mary, I didn't see you. Um, I just love how he called the fishermen. They're just regular people, like from all walks of life, um, working class people. And um, uh, I think... uh, the play that he used on being fishers of men. And I just think God is so amazing how he works all those things out and knows ahead of time how he's going to use them all to uh, help us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. We'll do this more over the next uh, number of weeks here. I think it'd be... We're going to probably have more shorter times than 
fewer, longer times like this. So uh, if you didn't get to share this morning, uh, don't worry. There will be a time for you to do that in uh, the weeks to come. But with that, let's uh, look at the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 1. And as we come to that passage, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. God, this morning we come before you and we acknowledge and worship you because you have made your wonders known. You have revealed yourself as gracious and compassionate. We believe that all your precepts are trustworthy. And we believe that the fear of you, God, is the beginning of wisdom. And so we ask this morning that as we look at this passage from Mark, that you would give us a clear vision, a clear picture of who Jesus is, and that you would help us to fear you with a rightful worship and reverence and awe. Help us now as we look at this passage. Holy Spirit, would you illumine our eyes to see what's here? Would you protect us from uh, seeing things that we don't need to see or aren't there? Lord, we just ask that you would meet us in fresh ways during this time. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We all live with a sense of hopeful longing that things could be different. And there's almost no time during the year where this is more obvious, especially in you know, the United States, around the time of the beginning of the new year, where people make resolutions. And there's just something about the new year that gives a sense of hope and optimism that maybe things could be different this year. Maybe those things that I'm struggling with, maybe the things that sort of plague me or our society, maybe this year is the year where those things change. And for whatever reason, we typically go into the new year with just a great sense of hope and optimism that things could be different. And so maybe you come into this new year, maybe you've made resolutions, maybe you've not, uh, but maybe you look into the year 2023 and there are things in your own personal life and you have a sense, uh, even a small sense of hope that those things could be different. So maybe there are some things that you want to change, there are unhealthy habits that you want to master or that you want to rid yourself of. There's things that you want to do. There's things you want to stop doing. Maybe you want to be healthier. Maybe you want to make better choices with food or diet or exercise or uh, you want to pursue something that you've maybe wanted to pursue for a long time and you've just not done it. Maybe there is uh, just some other thing in your life that you want to be different this year and you look at this new year and you say, you know, things could be different. It may be that there is uh, some difficult situation that you're facing in your life. Maybe there is difficulty with your uh, relationships, your marriage, your finances, your education, your vocation. 
in all those different spheres of life, we can experience difficulty. It may be just pervasive feelings of uh, sadness or a grief that you're walking through, a kind of sorrow that you're walking through. It may be a health challenge. It may be any number of different things. But maybe you look at this new year in that difficult situation and you look to the new year with a sense of kind of renewed hopefulness that maybe this is the year where I finally get some of those things under control. Maybe this is the year where I turn the corner in that relationship. Maybe this is the year where things begin to look different or I can find resolution or stability in the midst of that situation. Maybe this is the year where I can walk through that difficulty and it doesn't eat my lunch. Maybe you have a kind of hopefulness as you look on not just your personal, uh, on a personal level, but on a societal or global level. Maybe you look around at the difficulty that we experience and the tension that exists culturally, and you say, you know, maybe this is the year that something is going to change. Maybe this is the year that Republicans and Democrats are finally going to stop arguing about everything and maybe come together to get something accomplished. I mean, there's always hope, right? (laughs) Unlikely. But, you know, there's a kind of sense of hopefulness of like, man, can we just, is this the year when we finally just put all the nonsense behind us and actually just like do what we should be doing, (laughs) right? Maybe uh, we look at the the tension or the difficulty that we experience. We we look for uh, resolution or for healing from uh, divisions that exist, maybe culturally or racially within our country or within our world. And we say, maybe this is the year where something changes. But we all live with this kind of sense of hopeful Uh, hopefulness, and longing for things to be different. Now, this is exactly the same kind of hopefulness and longing that God's people were experiencing during the ministry of Jesus when he burst onto the scene. And for them, it was, yeah, certainly there was personal things where they experienced that. But for them, it was largely on on a nation of Israel level. They longed for things to be different. They longed for uh, God to bring a new era of his deliverance and salvation. Because at the time of Jesus's ministry, the people were no longer living in exile in a foreign land. They were released from exile, but now they're living back in their own land under a kind of functional exile where they live under the oppression and the authority of the Roman Empire. And what they are longing for is for God to do a new work of deliverance. They're longing for a new era of God's salvation to break in onto the scene. And the good news that we see in this passage today is that that new era of God's deliverance has arrived. So we're going to look at this passage uh, in two parts. There's uh, verses 4 through 8 and then verses 9 through 13. And so we're going to look at this passage here together today. And the first thing that we see is this. The picture that we get here is we see John baptizing in the wilderness And we see people coming from the Judean countryside and coming from Jerusalem. And he's this sort of strange man who wears strange things and eats strange things. And he's baptizing people in the wilderness. What we see is a picture that God's people are preparing for a new era in his saving activity. That's what this baptism that John is doing is all about. So the message that John proclaims is this. We see in verse 7, John says, After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John here, he recognizes his place. (laughs) Someone 
greater is coming after me. I'm just here to pave the way. I'm just sort of the forerunner to someone else. And he recognizes his place and says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie this person's sandals. That was the job of a slave in the first century. Stooping down to untie someone's sandals and touch their dirty feet as they've been walking on dirty, dusty roads was the lowest of the low on the socioeconomic ladder. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be considered a slave of this person who's coming after me. The second part of his message is he says in verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, this message of God pouring out his salvation on his people is a message that's often proclaimed in the prophets. And it's proclaimed in the prophets in the context of them speaking of the coming hope and renewal and restoration of God's people. So the pouring out of the Spirit is going to accompany a new work in God's saving plans of deliverance. And so we see this, for example, in places like Joel chapter 2. This is a very uh, well-known passage to many people. And in this passage, God says this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, the Lord, will be saved. And so what Joel is looking forward to and anticipating is a time when God is going to do something new. God is going to bring renewal and hope and restoration to his people, and it's accompanied by the pouring out of the Spirit. We see this also in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God's people find themselves still in exile, and through the prophet Ezekiel, God gives them this message. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24, God says, I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirits in you and move you to follow my decrees and carefully keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors You will be my people, and I will be your God. So again here, we see God proclaiming he's going to do a new work. There's going to be a new sort of era in his saving, delivering work, and it's going to be accompanied by the pouring out of the Spirit. And then you've got John here, who's out in the middle of the wilderness, this strange man out proclaiming the message that the one who will pour out the Spirit is coming. And so you've got this picture of this new era, this new day in God's delivering salvation plans is about to break in on the scene. We're on the verge of something completely new like we've never seen before. And that's his message. And the response that the people have is, what do they do? How do they respond to that message? Confession, and they get baptized. 
So how they respond to this message that God is, there's this new movement of God that's going to break in onto the scene. They confess their sins and they receive the mercy and the forgiveness of God. So they come to John, they confess their sins and they are baptized. Now baptism here is not the same as baptism as we see at other places in the New Testament. For example, in the letters of Paul, uh, in those places, baptism is a uh, representation of us dying with Christ and being raised to new life with him. This is a, a different kind of thing in this passage. This is a ritual washing. And you would be ritually washed and cleansed as an outward expression of an internal thing that God had done inside of you. So the people are coming to God and they are confessing their sins and they're being baptized as an act of trust saying, I trust that if I confess my sins to you, that in the same way I go under the water and the dirt is washed off of my body, in the very same way, the filth and the dirt is washed from inside of me and my sins are cleansed. And so they are being baptized as an act of repentance, as an act of trust. And this is what we see happening here. And you just just can sort of imagine all these people sort of coming out to the desert and it's this strange thing that's happening and what they're doing is they're preparing for a new era in God's saving activity. And that's what we are left longing for and expecting as we read this. But then in the second part of the passage, we see some good news. And that is that in Jesus, this new era of God's saving activity has finally arrived. The people are expecting it. They're preparing for it. And in Jesus... This new era of God's saving activity has arrived. Now, the baptism of Jesus has puzzled many people. You may be one of those people where you look at this passage and you're like, okay, the people came and they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And then you see Jesus came and Jesus was baptized. And you're like, wait a minute. Did Jesus need to be baptized to have his sins forgiven, right? That's the sort of the natural question that one would ask as you read that. John does tell us that Jesus did the same activity as the rest of the people did. He was baptized just like they were. But if, if we're careful readers of the text, what we see is that John gives Jesus's baptism a completely different meaning altogether. The people were baptized by John for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus was baptized by God as an affirmation of his divine identity. And so look in verse verse 10. We see Jesus coming out, and he's baptized by John. Then in verse 10, we read, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness, 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the animals and the angels attended him. There's so much here. We could go down so many little rabbit trails looking at uh, how these words describe the divine identity of Jesus. But let's just focus in on that word that came down from heaven. The Father speaks this word over Jesus the Son. You are my Son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. There's three phrases in there, and each of those is a uh, reference to something from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible. 
and for us to understand Jesus' identity, we got to see where these, where the, what do these passages remind us of in the Hebrew Bible. So first, this first phrase, you are my son. What this proclamation over Jesus tells us is that Jesus is God's son, our reigning king. And we know that because that's a quotation from Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, we see the exact same language where this is the son speaking. He says, he said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask me, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So in Psalm 2, we have this declaration that God has established, he has installed his king, not just over Israel, not just over the nations, but over the entire world. He's the cosmic king over all creation. And we come to the New Testament and we find that these very words from Psalm 2 about that ruling and reigning king are used to describe Jesus. And so the New Testament writers, what this is telling us is they understand that Jesus is that ruling, reigning king. So we see Jesus is God's son, our reigning king. But then secondly, that second phrase, we see that Jesus is God's beloved son, our perfect sacrifice. So not only is he God's son, he's God's beloved son. Virtually every scholar sees this second phrase, the phrase, whom I love, as a reference going back to the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verse 2. And what happens in Genesis 22 is God commands Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and to take him up on the top of a mountain and to sacrifice him. And so this is the word that God says to Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. In the Greek text of Mark, that's the same exact word that's used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 22. And so we see this allusion to God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. And if you're familiar with that story, you know that God stopped Abraham from actually killing his son. And there was a ram that was caught in the bushes. And that ram was a substitute for Isaac's life. And so Isaac wasn't ultimately sacrificed. But this is one of these pivotal moments in Abraham's life. It's a pivotal moment of his faith and his devotion to God. And what we see is that there's a, there's a pattern that we see emerging here. In Genesis 22, we have a picture of a father who's willing to sacrifice the son that he loves. And this is the word that's spoken over Jesus. He's the beloved son. And we see this picture as we read the rest of Mark's gospel. As we see it leading Jesus to the cross. And we see that God the father was willing to sacrifice the son whom he loves. And not only this, but Jesus, the son, was willing to submit himself to the will and to the plan of the father. Knowing it meant he would be executed on behalf of the people. He would give his life in place of theirs. And so we see Jesus is God's beloved son. He's his beloved son. He is the sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice. And in the last line, we see this. Jesus is God's servant, our obedient representative. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. That's a reference back to the book of Isaiah. 
where God speaks this about his prophet, or his servant rather. He says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. We see as the book of Isaiah unfolds that the servant God is speaking about here, we learn that that is God's suffering servant. We see that he's a representative on behalf of the nation of Israel because Israel was called by the same name as God's servant. Except Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to live in obedience to Yahweh and to love the nations around them and to display the glory in the name of God and to see his name proclaimed among the nations. And the nation of Israel failed miserably at that task. And so God sent another servant who we find will be his suffering servant who will give his life as a ransom for many. And we come here and we see that Jesus is God's servant, our representative, our obedient representative. Another way we see Jesus' obedience here and his, his being our representative is immediately Jesus goes out into the wilderness. And this calls up all these images of the nation of Israel who lived in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. And then you've got Jesus who goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. That's not a coincidence. What that's telling you is that the nation of Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. They were called to be obedient to Yahweh and to love him. And they failed at that. They were tested. They were tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And they chose to do what was right in their own eyes. They chose to grumble and complain against God who was their provider. And here we see that in all the ways that the nation of Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus was victorious. And so Jesus goes to battle against Satan. He goes to battle against the the spiritual forces of darkness and evil. And he comes out on top. He comes out as the victor. And so Jesus is all of these things. Jesus is God's son, our reigning king. He's God's beloved son, our perfect sacrifice. He's God's servant, our obedient representative. And as I said, there's, so, there, there's more here. I just want to nerd out for a while and just go into more of it. But I'm not going to for the sake of time. But this is the picture we see here, is that God's people are preparing for a new era of God's saving activity and that in Jesus, this new era of God's saving activity has finally arrived. And the question is, okay, so what? What difference does this make? What do we take home from this? What, how, how do we apply this? I think one of the uh, ways that we can uh, take this home is, is just to see Mark's, see the way that Mark lays out this material for us. Mark doesn't begin his gospel by giving us a list of things to go do. He gives us a picture of who Jesus is. And Mark is insistent that as we read these first few chapters of his gospel, the main thing that we are to take away from this is not, okay, what am I supposed to go do? The main thing we are supposed to take away from this is who is Jesus? We see a picture of who Jesus is. And Mark is calling us not just to see Jesus, but to delight in him for who he is and for what we will see him doing for us as the gospel unfolds. And so the first application is just to sit in wonder and sit in worship of who Jesus is and to submit our lives to him. But secondly, 
Here's one thing I just want to observe with you as, as we look at this, this declaration that was given over Jesus. You are my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. I think that it's so important that we see that this was spoken over Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, not the end. And what that means is that Jesus lived and Jesus ministered from his identity, not for it. Okay, before Jesus lifted a finger to do any spiritual activity for God the Father, before he preached his first sermon, before he did his first miracle or cast out a demon, before he called any disciples to follow him, this identity was spoken over Jesus. Think about how this would be different if Mark told a different story. So imagine you've got this picture of of John baptizing all these people in the wilderness. And then just out of nowhere, Jesus comes on the scene. There's no Jesus being baptized. It's just Jesus comes and all of a sudden he starts driving out demons and he starts healing people and he's, you know, he's, he's loving people well and he's compassionate and he's living in obedience, perfect obedience to God the Father. And he's living his life in perfect submission to the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's doing all of that stuff. And then he eventually ends up suffering and dying. And as he's hanging on the cross, as he breathes his last and his body goes limp, at that moment, the clouds open. And the darkness that was over all the land is lifted for a moment. And there's this beam of light that comes out on Jesus' lifeless body on the cross. And there's the voice that booms from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. If that's how Mark would have told the story, what we could take away from that is that the identity that God the Father spoke over Jesus was given to him as a result of a life well lived. What we could misunderstand from that is that the Father's love for the Son was based in his performance was based in all the good things he did. And God is saying, you know what? You did a pretty good job, you know? And so I'm going to give you this identity. I'm going to speak this word of love and affirmation over you as a result of what you've done for me. And we could hear that message. And yet that is not the way Mark tells the story. And it's not the way that the events happened. And that's on purpose. Everything that Jesus did in his earthly life and ministry was done out of, was done from the identity that God the Father had spoken over him, not for it. And the exact same thing is true of us, that we live and minister from our identity, not for it. Friends, do you realize that there is no trial period? You know, how often do you hear, you know, a 30-day Money-back guarantee, you can try it if you don't like it. You know, Amazon is like, hey, we'll send you a bunch of clothes and you try them on. And if you don't like them, send them back and try before you buy. And it's like, you can buy a mattress. And they will literally give you a full year to sleep on this mattress. And if on day 364, you're like, yeah, I don't like it, you send it back, (laughs) right? There's a trial period. That's not the way that this works, friends. There is no trial period. There is no period of probation, There is no period during which God the Father, when you come to him in faith and submit your life to Jesus, he says, okay, well, you know, let's just, I'm just going to sort of stand back and observe and see how is this going to work out in the end? Are you going to prove yourself faithful to me? Are you going to do all the things that you promise you're going to do? Or are you going to kind of screw it up? And based on that, I'll say, you know, 
I'm not going to give you that identity if you're just going to drag it through the mud and screw it up. God is not like that. The identity that is spoken over us is given to us the moment that we give our lives to Jesus and are indwelt by the presence of the Spirit. John says, the Apostle John says in his first letter, see what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The identity that we have as children of God is not based on anything that we do for God. Friends, do you know that God doesn't want, God doesn't need your spiritual activity. God doesn't want, he doesn't need you to do anything for him. Like he's standing up there like, oh, I'm so lonely or I'm so, you know, I just need what all these little human creatures can give to me. God does not need anything from you and, and therefore his, his love and his affirmation from you cannot be because of the little things you do for him. God doesn't want just you to do all the spiritual activity. We don't live and minister for an identity. We live and minister from the identity that God has given to us. And when we realize this, this, this protects us from going into one of two ditches. The one ditch is to say, uh, you know, he must be really pleased with me because, and you can fill in the blank with like, well, does he remember how much I serve in the church? You know, God, do you remember how much money I give? All the conversations I've had with people who are non-believers and you know, all, the, all the work I've done for you, God, don't you remember that? And when you think that way, you are saying, God's love for me is based on what I do, not what he's spoken over me. And it also protects us from the opposite, where you may be thinking to yourself, you know, God is disappointed in me because, and you can fill in all the, the long list of like, I'm not good at this, and I don't read my Bible very often, and honestly, I struggle to even want to pray, let alone to pray. I don't remember the last time I've had a spiritual conversation. God must be really disappointed in me because of all these things that I'm not good at doing. And that too is believing the lie that God loves you because of what you do for him. Neither of those things are true. And what's true is that the moment that you put your faith in Jesus, you are given a new identity as a son and daughter of God. What's true is that because you are in Christ and because you are united with him, what that means is that the same exact word of affirmation that God spoke over Jesus is now spoken over you. You are God's son or daughter whom he loves. With you, he is well pleased. And it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with all the good stuff you've done. It has nothing to do with all the bad stuff that you've avoided doing. It's only because God chose to simply love you. And it's so important, friends, that as we go throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, and yes, there's going to be plenty of things for us to see and to apply and stuff that we should be doing, right? We're to follow Jesus, to apprentice ourselves to him, to see what he does, and then to go live the way Jesus lived, right? So we are supposed to do things, and yet we have to get this right at the outset. Because if we mess this up, we're going to go about this following Jesus thing the complete opposite way of the way God has designed it. We have to see the identity of Jesus. We have to see that everything we do is not in order to gain an identity from God, but as a joyful response to the affirmation and the word of love and grace that God has already spoken over us in Christ.
Amen? As we come to the communion table today, this gets to be a joyful response to what John says, that God has lavishly poured out his love on us. And we get to remember and celebrate. And as we come to the table and receive, that's what you do. You don't come to the table to give anything. You physically come out of your seat as an act of faith in order to say, God, I have nothing. You come with empty hands. And what do you get in return? You leave with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. What a gift. And so even as we take communion, it's a reminder that the identity, that the affirmation that God has spoken over us in Christ is simply a free grace. And we just come to rejoice and to celebrate and to receive it with hope and with faith. And so we get to do that today. As we come to the communion table, I want to just leave a few moments of quiet time for confession and reflection. And then we will uh, join together and come to the table.